0: Wow, oh, you guys sounded terrific this morning. Good job. Uh, so we're talking about effective, and uh, I want to make a quick note for you. Our One of the, the ministries that we found to be really effective uh, in terms of helping marriages go from a three to a five, or a five to an eight, is our re-engage, and uh, we have two slots open. Uh, what happens is, as soon as we get five couples that will go into a group, then that closes, and so we have two slots open, so... We invite you to come and join us on uh, Tuesday nights at 6.30 and check it out, see if it's something that uh, you'd want to get involved in, but if uh, you want to see your marriage improve, it's a terrific, terrific thing to do. Uh, so as we've been working through Effective, we keep uh, finding out that the Bible can be trusted, find out the, the Bible really works, and uh, each week Dan tells us some historical or archaeological truth that helps us to be able to know why we can stu- we can trust the Bible. So here's Dan.
1: Hi, my name is Dan. In this series, we're looking at the historical evidence for the Bible to understand, can it be trusted? Can you trust the Bible? Today we're going to talk about the New Testament. This section of the Bible claims to have been written by those who were alive at the time of Jesus or shortly after and able to interview eyewitnesses to his life and teaching. The original writing would have spanned the period from about AD 50 to AD 90. But we don't have the original writing anymore, so how can we be sure that what we have today is accurate? Can we be sure that the Bible was not written by religious leaders well after the first century for purposes of strengthening their own personal power and religious system? Well, like the Old Testament, The New Testament has self-referential components. Peter talks about the letters of Paul. Paul makes references to other letters being passed around the churches. But let's set that aside for the moment and consider the evidence for the antiquity, how old are the writings, and the accuracy of the text that we have today. There are a lot of very old books that we still read today, classics from the Greek and Roman era, comparable in time to the writing of the New Testament. And just like the Bible, These books have been copied, recopied, translated, sent to different parts of the world, stored in secret places, recovered later, and so on, until today. And like the Bible, we don't have the original texts of those books either. So scholars look at a variety of copies and manuscripts, whether fragments or whole copies, to determine as best they can the original text. We will get a more faithful rendition of the original text in two ways. First. We want the oldest versions we can find. The closer in time to the original, the lower the chance that something has been copied incorrectly or a later editor has changed the text. And second, we want lots of copies. This helps us find misspellings and word order changes and the like, and it gives us the chance to use some statistics to determine the correct words. As a simple example of that, imagine these three manuscripts. Four score and seven years ago. Four score and seven years ago, 87 years ago. Looking at those three, we could be pretty confident that the original text was four score and seven years ago, right? But if I only had the third manuscript, I would have to live with 87 years ago. And although I would know exactly what Abraham Lincoln meant, I would miss the cadence and poetry of his speech. So having three copies allowed us to pick the version that was most correct in the same fashion Having lots of copies, lots of manuscripts of texts of these old books helps us be quite accurate to the original intent. So let's look at a chart with some of these old works on it. I've grouped a section of works from some Greek histories to some Roman pieces uh, that were written about the time of the Bible from about 400 BC to 100 AD. Take an example of the middle there, Pliny the Elder, Natural History, was written in AD 79 right at the same time that the New Testament was being written. For most of these old works, we have well less than 500 copies, manuscripts, or fragments. For Pliny the Elder's Natural History, we only have 200 copies. A more famous work, one that maybe you read in high school or in college, is Homer's Iliad, the story of the war in Troy. That was written about 800 BC, so similar in time to the later parts of the Old Testament. There are 1,800 copies, fragments and manuscripts that we use to source that book today. But the Greek New Testament, written about the same time as Pliny's history, we have over 5,800 copies. That's a ton of copies of that particular version and that's setting aside translations or other language versions of the New Testament. That's an enormous amount. We have a lot more evidence for the text of the New Testament than we have for many other famous works. Now these numbers come from 2014, and they change slightly all the time as scholars and archeologists find new copies. But each one that we find adds to the story that we have, just a massive evidence that the Bible that you hold in your hands today is an accurate representation of what was originally written. We could also consider other writing that quotes the New Testament. While not strictly copies of the Bible, People wrote letters to each other or wrote books about Christianity that included sections of what we know today as the Bible. Think about a sympathy card or a birthday card that you might send today. Some of those cards will have a verse of the Bible in them. When we look at the oldest such works, those letters and books and commentaries that were dated before 300 AD, there are more than 35,000 quotations of the New Testament. Dr. Ron Rhodes claims that there are enough of these quotations to recreate nearly the entire New Testament, saving only 11 verses from material written within 200 years of the time of Christ. In all of the cases of these old books, the texts that we have are kind of scattered across the years as to when they were written. If we look at the oldest manuscript, even if it's just a fragment, this helps us see the latest date at which the original text could have been written. And for most of these works, the oldest fragment we can find is several hundred years after the stated drafting date. The best of the bunch is Sophocles' plays. Uh, He was a Greek dramatist writing plays uh, in Athens. We have a partial copy that's about 200 years after the original publication. But for the Greek New Testament, we have fragments that date back to AD 130, only 50 or so years after the original writing. Again, this gives us a great deal of confidence that the New Testament was written right about the time that it claims. We have support for this early writing from other sources. Adrian Hastings, in his book, A World History of Christianity, includes an extract from a criminal trial that took place in 180 AD, just outside of Carthage in North Africa. A group of Christians was accused of practicing an illicit religion, and in their defense, their leader, a man named Sparatus, brought with him a bag containing the letters of Paul in case perhaps they might need them. You see, Christianity was a written religion, like the Jews before them, with a strong reliance on the actual text being authoritative. And this, of course, is one of the reasons we have so many copies available to us today. We might read Homer's Iliad as great literature, or Pliny's history to learn what the world was like during the Roman Empire but many people read the Bible as a foundation for their life, their purpose, their future. They found it trustworthy because it changed their lives, and so they wanted to make sure it was passed on to you and me today.
0: Didn't know when you were reading all those history books that the Bible has way more uh, copies, way more... Uh to back it up in terms of uh, being accurate. Um, I just love that information. I love the, the encouragement it gives us as we move forward. So today we're talking about growth. Uh, growth is pretty important to your life. Uh, you, are, Most of you are in some journey where you really want to grow, and uh, there's two reasons that come up that cause us to want to grow. One is inspiration. You see something or someone, and you want, hey, I want my life to be like that. I want that to happen with me I want to be able to grow I want to change from the inside out so I can experience what they're experiencing Uh, or number two it comes from desperation that's where my life doesn't work and I don't like what I see I don't and there's so much pain in my life I'm like I'm 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 ready to grow I'm ready to change I'm ready to to do something different Uh, for years in my life I had a, a huge reputation for being late it was because I was always late and it, it, was a just, it was a way I lived my life, and uh, I didn't think it was any big deal. And then I realized that it was really impacting the teams that I led and the people that I was trying to impact. And I said, look, I don't, I don't want that to be true anymore, and went to work on that kind of change or that kind of growth in my life. And so this morning, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to teach you something about farming and about corn, and then from there, we're going to walk our way through growth. Um, so... Uh, my brother uh, plants about 4,000 acres of corn every year. Enormous amount of corn. How many seeds that is, I, I, that's beyond my ability to probably to add up. Uh, it's, it's in the billions of seeds that he plants every year. And when the seed goes into the ground... Um, a couple of things have to happen. The ground has to warm up to a specific degree, 52 degrees. And once it hits 52 degrees, and has the right amount of moisture. There has to be something like 15 to 17% moisture in the ground. And when those two things happen, it sprouts and germinates. And all of a sudden, it starts to grow. And it comes up. And w- as it comes up, it will hit the top of the soil. And if the top of the soil is too hard and it can't get through, it has about 12 hours to get through. If you find out that your field, because it rained hard and then the sun came out, kind of got baked over, and it's hard, you've got to get out there and you've got to break that soil up. Because within, if it doesn't happen within 12 hours, what happens is the corn turns and grows backwards. It goes right back down. It keeps growing, but it grows down, it doesn't grow up, until the point at which it, 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 it doesn't have enough sunlight, and so then it dies, all right? So, at this important, important juncture, the point at which it's time to pop out of the ground, um, what I want to talk about today uh, has a lot to do with the fact that I watch people's lives, myself included, but I watch a, a, a lot of people's lives, and they're like, I want to change, I want to change and you're full of intention you're full of great intention and you want to change either because of desperation or inspiration and you truly want to change so you get involved in things you ask people how can I change and um, you you get involved in a you come to church some of you come to church because you want to change You're looking for answers. You get involved in a life group. I want to change. You get involved in, you start to read the Bible, interact with the Bible. We've been telling you that it works. You want to change. And as you do these things, there's two pieces that I want to make sure you understand are critical to change. Because for many of us, we've actually been in this pattern a lot of our life, most of our life. For some of you, you you know some of us we're like yeah I'm going to change and you go out and you buy if it's you know if it's your body you go out and buy all the right stuff and tennis shoes sign up for the class and you're like all into it and everybody talks to you you just talk them about this class and you're so excited about this class and off you go and down it goes for some of us we have conversations with people, and if we recorded it and played it back, you would realize, wait a minute, I, I was having that exact same conversation 10 years ago about how I wanted to see this change happen in my life, and I'm working on this change, and I'm working on this change. And to some degree, there is a truth to the fact that change takes time. But I want to warn you about two things this morning that don't take time. They actually happen in a moment. And if these two things don't happen, then your change is gonna peter out. It's not gonna be a long-term, healthy change in your life. It's kind of the point at which you hit the soil, and if you don't pop through with these two things, you, you, you continue to work on it, but it turns and goes the other direction. So I'm gonna hit these two things, and then we got a really cool story coming. Okay, the first one is this. Change of ownership happens in a moment. Change of ownership happens in a moment. Who owns you? Who owns your life? Who owns your future? This is critical to change. Because as long as you still own the title of your life, then you get to make the decisions. What do you mean? I mean, you get up. I mean, the alarm goes off. And you get to decide whether or not you're going to get up or not get up. And you promised yourself you were going to go to the gym at 6 o'clock. And the alarm goes off. And your entire body screams at you, don't you dare get out of bed. (laughs) Don't you dare get out of bed. If you're the owner, you get to decide. If you've transferred the ownership to someone else, they get to decide. It's not up to you anymore. They're the owner. And so the goal, one of the points at this point is that you have a change of ownership, that Christ owns me, my life, and my future. When I'm making decisions, I make the decisions on the basis that Christ owns me, my life, and my future. This is a title, and the title has something called owner. On the back of it, actually has a place where you can change the name of the owner. You get to, if you were the owner, you get to sign away ownership. You sign away the title. And these couple of things, these couple of passages we're going to look at next. Jesus invites people, uh, or shares how God has invited people to give up ownership, to change title to someone else. He He's uh, talking to a group of people. It's a group of people who are uh, claiming they want change, claiming that they want to follow uh, God, they want to be have a relationship with God, they want their lives to uh, amplify or uh, exemplify that. And uh, this is the conversation he has with them. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, "Son, go to work. Go and work today in the vineyard." "I will not," he answered. His intention was, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. He's like, "Uh, I was really, really, really cool. I had uh, four children, and they have different personalities, right? I had one who almost always said, I will not. I'm not going to do it. You mean like they they didn't straight up and say that. I said, no, they straight up and said it. Knowing what the punishment would be, I'm not going to do it. I'll take the punishment. But later, he changed his mind, and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said to the same thing. He answered, I will. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The one with great intentions who'd said yes, or the one who said no and decided no? No, I know who my owner is. I'm going to go. Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, It was a shocking thing for him to say to this group of people. In their minds, the last people on earth who could ever achieve righteousness or change or goodness or a relationship with God was the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It's kind of shocking. He says, they are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. They're going first. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, John the Baptist. But you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. At that point in their lives, at the point when they hit that soil, when, when Jesus made clear, either through John the Baptist first or when Jesus came afterwards, and he said, look, the way to righteousness is when you give up ownership to me. I'm the righteous one, I have the ability to give you righteous, righteousness, but you've got to become part of me. You've got to give up ownership. You can't add Jesus to your life. And many times when we want change in our lives, we actually come to Jesus and we seek Him to help us change. You've prayed that many, many times. Jesus, help me change. But you did it without the first juncture, which is, Jesus, I'm signing over title of my life to you. Jesus, this is your life now. It's not mine. I don't make the calls. I'm not the boss. You are. Jesus said that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they heard that. They got it. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in me. Even though you're watching it happen, you did not repent and believe in me. In other words, you continue to live your life claiming great intent for change, and quite frankly, you probably do have great intent for change. But you won't give up title. You won't give up title. The later is in uh, Revelation, in the book of Revelation, there's this passage that says this, for I know your deeds, I know what you do, he says that you are neither neither cold nor hot, neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one, one or the other, so these are people who are living their lives in the kind of in the middle of the road, half of their foot in, yeah, Jesus, I want what you want. And half of their foot in. No, I'm still gonna. I, I'm still gonna control this thing. This is still my life. I don't want to give up ownership of my life. I want change. I I, I want to do some good things. And so I sort of work on some good things. I do some good things. Do you ever find yourself in your life going, Well, yeah, I know. I know. I did that. But man, look look what I did over here. Well, I know. I, I know, God. I know, I, know you're, I know you're calling me to do that, but not right now. But look what I'm doing over here. That's lukewarm. Halfway. In other words, I still am going to maintain the title of my life. I'm going to own my life. I still have final decision on what to do with my life. When that happens change will peter out it will when you sign over a title the actual as you're going to find the 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 last point we're going to talk about is fruit does take time it actually takes time for the change to show on the outside but real change happens when you sign title over to christ the uh, second one is uh, change of direction happens in a moment. Change of direction happens in a moment. Uh, if you happen to have this, you can pull it out. on your, No, don't pull your phones out. You'll start reading your Facebook page and all that stuff. Don't do that. Uh, it used to come on all the phones, I think, but now you got to do the download the app to be able to do it. But I have a compass on my phone, and I am presently... true north. That's the direction that I'm, that's true north right there. If we follow that, we will go to the north pole. That's where we'll end up. Okay? And change of direction, where am I headed? What am I looking at? Who am I looking at? If you choose to do this slowly, if you choose to focus on what you've always been focused on, and try to change at the same time. I'm going to do that ch- slowly, right? So I'm just going to change my focus a little bit where I can still see it. A little bit where I can still see it. A little bit where I can still see it. It's really like that, pe- that, that corn. You're going to hit that soil, and you're going you're gonna to have intentions. You're going to work at changing. You're going to do the practices of changing, but you're going to turn around, and you're going to go back in the other direction. Because the change of direction happens in a moment. Jesus kept asking people to change direction in a moment. Uh, that's the passages we're going to take a look at next. Um, as they were walking along the road, so there's a bunch, of, in this passage, there's a bunch of people who are actually following Jesus. And why wouldn't you follow Jesus? He's feeding people. He's healing people. And he, his teaching is amazing. Like, it's like nothing you've ever heard before. So these people are following along. And this guy says, hey, he says, "Um, and a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus, wherever you go. There's that intention, man. God, I want change in my life. I want to go there. Jesus, wherever you go, that's where I'm going. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So right off the bat, this is what he says. He says, I want you to understand something. You said you want to follow me? I want you to understand something. I have nothing that this world has to offer. I don't own anything that this world has to offer. This is really important, guys. Because almost all of the change that we go after in our lives is because we want our lives on earth to improve. If I preached messages on a weekly basis that said, look, Jesus does not care if you ever get rich. Jesus doesn't care if you own a house. Jesus, he's not interested in any of those things. You know what happened to our congregation? If I talked about that every week? A few of you, maybe 10, would be like, that's awesome. That is all. You are preaching the word, man. Keep it up. Tell them the truth. That's awesome. But the rest of us, including me, (laughs) would be like, wait, wait, wait. Like, no, I want it to work. I want it to work. I want you to be, I want to be really clear about this. It is true that when you follow Jesus' principles, the fruit over time does improve your life. It's actually true. If you follow biblical principles over time, almost everyone who does that is in way better financial position 10 years down the road than they are now. That's not why Jesus does it. And he says to this guy, and this is really important for direction. This is really important for your compass of your life. Because when you want Jesus to come alongside you and you want Jesus to come in the, in the direction or the, where you're already focused and what you want for your life, when you want him to help you do that, you will never change direction. You just want him to come alongside and help you. He tells them, look, I want you to understand something. I'm not interested in any of those things. And then he says to another guy who's there with him. I guess, I don't know if that guy ran away or what happened. But he says to another guy, Follow me. But he replied, Lord. So it kind of gives you the idea Lord, that he's given him the title of his life. Maybe, maybe not. He says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. Why are you here? Do you want to follow somebody who says, let the dead bury their own dead? There is an important context to this, and that is, uh, one, Jesus is not teaching you shouldn't go to funerals. He's teaching this particular guy, his dad hadn't died yet. He said, let me go back, wait till my dad dies, wait till all of those things happen, and then I want to follow you. In other words, I will change the direction of my life over time and Jesus said no you either choose to follow me now or you hit the top and you turn Jesus said no if you're going to follow me you follow me now he says to another person Jesus uh, still another said I will follow you Lord but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family let me get this all worked out with my family. This is very, very common for many, many, many of you. Jesus has come to you in different areas of your life, but for some of you right here in Skyline, Jesus has come to you and said, you follow me. And, and in your heart, you said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. You walked out, you got in your car, and you started thinking about your extended family and how Jesus, it seems like, is calling me to do something my extended family wouldn't think was okay they're going to tease me, they're going to torment me, they may even kick me out of the family. But you see, this happens in a moment. You don't go back to your family, get it all worked out with them, which by the way will never happen, get it all worked out with them, and then come follow Jesus. He says, no, happens in a moment. We do that right and then the, uh, the next uh, point is fruit changes over time. That's true. Fruit does change over time. What do I mean? I mean that once you go through the dirt, once the seed's gone, once you change ownership, once you change direction, once that happens and you continue to actually grow, then fruit does come. And that takes time. The Bible says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Which, by the way, the last list, that's what Jesus wants in your life. The last list. If that's true of you, if you've grown so that that's who you are, you don't have to come to 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 re-engage. You don't. Why? Your marriage blossoms. All these different areas of your life, they blossom. How come? Because you're actually living out this fruit that God wants to produce in you. But the question is this. I don't know what God's already challenged you about, but I know he has. He's already challenged you to follow him And there's some things he said, oh, yeah, and I want you to give that up. Or I want you to grab a hold of this. And you said, Jesus, I'll follow you, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. Whoa, can't, can't give that up. Sometimes it's the silliest of stuff. Sometimes it's alcohol. Sometimes it's a hobby. Sometimes it's your language. And what that thing actually is is a test. As to whether or not he is the owner or you are, it's a test as to where your compass is headed. Are you following Jesus or headed in that direction? Liza is going to come out. She's going to share her story about how the Bible has impacted her and helped her to grow. Liza.
2: So back in December, I received an email from Pastor Chris, and he mentioned he could use some insight on how the Bible is working for me. My first thought was, I shouldn't respond. I don't read my Bible enough. (laughs) But I felt honored he even thought of me. I'm not a member of the church. Um, I don't feel like I'm involved enough. I'm not in like growth catalysts or anything. But I did reply that I would try my hardest to answer and that I would be honest. I want it to be honest, even though it's personal. This is my relationship with Christ, not a church or a religion, a person, group leader, or a pastor. This is all from my heart and my experiences. This is my Bible. Um, back in October, I was doing a bake sale to raise money for Puerto Rico. And there were lots of vendors at this event. One of them happened to be a church, and my son was walking around with my cousin, and he comes over to me and he goes, Mom, I got you this. I think you're really gonna like it. It's small. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I put it in my purse, and I find myself drawn towards it more. I would usually look into my phone for Bible verses, occasionally pick up my Bible I had at home, Um, but since this was in my purse, It was so much easier and I found myself highlighting things just from opening it and reading wherever it took me. And then you can imagine I was floored when he asked me to speak to you guys. (laughs) Before Pastor Chris met me, which was in the past year, he had met my mother 15 years ago when Skyline was just starting. She was full of life kind of person with always a big smile on her face and with her children she was really affectionate. This is how she showed us she loved us. But her tongue wasn't as kind. She was heavy with emotion and would lash out in frustration. She was a type to say one thing and do another. For instance, she taught me she taught me about faith, but she didn't show me how to follow. Very recently, I opened my Bible and I find myself I found myself in James for the first time. The power of the tongue really stood out to me. James 3.10, out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brother and sister, this should not be. See, I was raised with a family that had very foul mouths. It was a language spoken very often in my house, so often that it was casual, and the abuse went completely unnoticed. On a daily basis, I was called stupid, like, hey, stupid. I would do something wrong, like, you're such a moron or I would even be called an effin' idiot, and at times, a little b. But like I said, this abuse went completely unnoticed, and it was common for us, as we grew up, for my siblings and I, to even have foul mouths at a certain age. But here I am, 30 years old, and I find myself biting my tongue very often, fighting my emotions to lash out. See, while I was growing up, there were things that my mother did that stood out to me that I didn't want to do as a parent. I didn't want to put partying over my children, I didn't want to put drinking before my children, and most of all, I never wanted to put drugs or pills above my family. My mother may sound like a bad person, but prescription pills have a way of consuming a person. Sadly, all three of these advices ultimately took her life when I was 20. They called it an accidental death. From mixing all different things, her heart couldn't take it. Now, this may sound like I had a horrible life, but the truth is I have a lot of great memories. I've been on 14 different Disney vacations, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, down the shore every weekend in the summer, sledding on snow days, and most of all, cooking side by side with my mother every night, dancing in the kitchen. But as you grow, you notice things more and more. So when I became a mother seven years ago, these goals were very easy for me. But as my children are growing, (laughs) Parenting is becoming increasingly challenging. They're not little babies anymore, where I could just put them there and they would just stay, or I would just clean them, change them, feed them. The fact that I am molding these tiny little humans is settling in and frustration is coming out. Parenting isn't as simple as, no, don't do that, and that being the end of it. Because here I am, six years later, and I'm still telling my son not to run in the house. Not only can he get hurt, but we have neighbors down below I try to explain to him that Jesus wants us to love our neighbors and we should be considerate, but that's not going to stop the flash. <laughs> so it must be me. I must just be, you know, from what I was raised with, all this craziness, it, it, it must be me. I must be an awful mother. I beat myself up in my head. I talk down to myself and I just convince myself it's me. One day in life group at Addie's house almost a year ago, I was in a group with a bunch of moms sharing some insightful stories on parenting. It made me feel relieved. I'm not the only mom who can't get their children to listen. <laughs> I think it was Rachel who said during this conversation, love is patient. And then our group leader, Sally, had pulled up the verse and read it out loud. It was like something clicked. Yes, love must be, must be patient. It stuck in my mind, resonating with my soul. Yes, 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 this is true. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not dishonored, it does not dishonor others, and it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrong. See, after after school days are really challenging for me. While I'm trying to do homework with my son, he's very unengaged. He's all, I don't want to, please, come on, can we watch TV? And he's got his pencil between his toes, and he's trying to... And that's not it. My daughter comes running in, and she ripped all her clothes off again. She found a marker she's drawn all over the walls and I need to find this secret stash she has. I go to handle her, and then before I know it, the dog's knocking over the garbage can she 's all in there. You can imagine the frustration is settling in. my emotions are telling me to scream, yell everything wrong that is wrong with this picture just give them a whack (laughs) and especially if my husband happens to have off that night and is playing basketball well it's all his fault it's it's his fault he should be here he should be helping me he doesn't care my mind just feeds me more and more fire I'd love to say that I never let these things get to me but that would be a lie this isn't a story about victory but of daily battles and trial and error I take a deep breath thinking of my son's favorite worship song, Just Breathe by Johnny Diaz. My spirit reminds me, feeding me words, love is patient. I take another deep breath, thinking of the song when he says, when stress settles in, take a second and fill your lungs. Love does not anger easily. I think of how to handle this situation. First of all, this clearly isn't my husband's fault. (laughs) He works so hard to provide for our family, he deserves one night of basketball. I take another deep breath. Love keeps no records of wrong. Second, yes, I could yell something like, you never listen, as he slides down his seat, fighting with me to do his homework. But I'm reminded he's a child. What would my yelling accomplish? It has gotten me nowhere in the past. Basically, just dragging out the whole process to stop and argue with a child. That doesn't even sound right. What would that teach him? Just to yell and get angry when he's frustrated? When I pause to organize my thoughts, I realize what really makes me angry is the disrespect. So I came up with three rules. No dirty looks, no talking back, and no attitude. I tell Daniel he has to stand up and shake his wiggles out. And we all get a nice little laugh just to dance for a second. And I ask him, what does he want to watch or do? And I remind him that it's his decision to focus on doing his homework as fast as he can, so he has time to do what he wants, because he still has responsibilities to eat dinner, shower, and be in bed by 8.30. And if he simply doesn't have enough time, I'm very sorry, but that wasn't my decision. When I say the Spirit feeds me words, love is patient, what do I mean? Some people call this their conscience or gut feeling, even intuition but to me, that's my spirit. The Holy Spirit Jesus Christ left with us when he was resurrected. This is how I know Jesus is alive and lives in me. John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Wow, right there, that is powerful to me, the spirit of truth. See, when I don't follow my spirit, I'm left in conflict. Now what do I mean conflict? Say I do lash out at him. I get angry, maybe even give him a whack. He's upset, I get emotional, and then before I know it, the guilt sets in. This is all my fault. I must just be a bad mother. I'm yelling at him, I hit him, maybe, I'm arguing with him. And then I continue to think of all my imperfections, everything I lack has me overthinking in my mind. When I see Erica in group interacting with her children, she is just glowing with this patience. I admire her gentle, encouraging ways, even when they're not listening. When I'm patient, hence when I bite my tongue, I take a deep breath and I think of how I can encourage him, redirect him on a stronger path, full of love. I need to bring excitement to learning so he can enjoy it and be enthusiastic about it. Here now is where I find joy, Seeing him build confidence during a time that was full of anger can now be filled with joy, not because it's easier, because Lord knows I struggle with this, and I ask him for help constantly. Yet my spirit reminds me of words I've read before. John 26, 27. But this advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace. I leave with you peace I give you I do not give as the world gives do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid it is mind-blowing to see how the Bible will start to work for you just knowing that one little verse love is patient love is kind blossomed and made me want to learn more and read more when I opened my Bible to read it for myself it settled in even deeper how this one verse can help any individual be a better person in any area Love does not boast, it is not quick to anger, it's not self-seeking, it does not envy. Just knowing that made me want to learn more. Pulling out my Bible whenever I'm bored instead of my phone has really helped to grow a passion for wanting to learn more, and seeing how it works in my life has given me great peace.
0: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Liza. I thank you that many times you have called her to give up her title. You've called her to let you be the compass and to follow you. And how, as she has said yes, um, there's been real fruit, true change in her life. Lord, you're, you're really clear. You don't have any place to lay your head. That's not what you pursue, and that's not what you promise us. But our relationships with our children, that you pursue. That matters to you. Our relationships and our marriages, that you pursue. And that's where you promise the fruit over time. And Lord, I pray for each person here who, as they heard your word this morning and they were reminded of times when you've called them and they really wanted to change. But they didn't give up title. That right now, while we're singing, they'll have that conversation with you again. They'll give you the ownership of their life. They'll give you direction. They'll look at you and follow you wherever you go. In your name we pray.